You are listening to First in Human, where we interview industry leaders and investors to learn about their journey to inhuman clinical trials. Presented by Vial, a tech-enabled CRO. Hosted by co-founder and CEO Simon Burns. With episodes launching weekly on Tuesdays and Thursdays. In episode 13, we chat with Amit Nathwani, CEO at Dewpoint Therapeutics. Find out why you shouldn't underestimate the complexity of the biology and the disease as it pertains to global approvals. Amit, thank you for joining us on First in Human. Glad to be here. Thank you, Simon. Thank you for the invite. It's a pleasure. Well, let's jump in with quick introductions. I'm, of course, Simon, co-founder and CEO of Vile. Amit, tell us about your background and yeah. how did you get to where you are? Great. Thank you. I'm a physician. I'm a cardiologist by training. I'm the CEO of Dewpoint Therapeutics, but before I came to Dewpoint, I'll tell you a bit about it. I was the chief medical officer, chief digital officer in Sanofi on the executive committee. Before that, I actually spent a lot of my time as a head of medical and also the head of cardiometabolic research and development at Novartis and prior to that in GSK. So I've clearly got a passion for developing drugs in the cardiovascular space as my primary goal. But I've loved actually the chance to actually do something pretty cool with both digital technologies and just drug development and digital health overall. Your depth and breadth of experience is really remarkable. The number of global approvals, number of programs you've worked on. I'm sure countless biotech founders are asking you what the lessons learned were going through <laughs> all of those programs. Maybe distill it down. What key lessons, key learnings from taking as many programs as you have through to global approvals? I've been very lucky. So drug development is a lot of probability, a lot of luck. You know, I've been very fortunate uh, with my luck. But success is a lousy teacher. So I'll give you six key things that really I've taken away from. I've done over 20 drugs from beginning to end. and But I've actually killed more drugs than I've actually developed. So I think it's important lesson to learn as well. If I just take away from all of the time I've been doing this, which is over 26 years now, you know, firstly, don't underestimate the complexity of the biology of the disease. We think that we know everything by the time we start drug development, and we just at the start of the journey. And usually when things go wrong, we just realize what we didn't know before. So actually, that's one of the first things that I take away. The second thing is really kind of paying attention to the little details. It sounds trivial, but when we're introducing a brand new innovation into a brand new healthcare system, and you haven't innovated around the healthcare system itself, something that we should talk about in terms of virtual trials and decentralized trials and things as well. But if you're building an innovative drug, but you're just introducing into an old system, the likelihood that that's going to actually give you the benefit and you're going to make errors along the way are pretty big. So I really think that those details are really kind of important to fix early on. The third one is just being bold. In many of the trials that we did, people were trying to, in committees, large companies tend to be reductionists in risk. They always want to reduce the risk because it's such a high-risk business anyway. But if you're not bold, your innovation will never really get to the aspiration you believe. So I'm a big believer in if it's a great idea, then it should stay a great idea and you should really be confident and you want to exploit it. And if it really doesn't pan out, so be it. But at least you've given it its best shot. The fourth thing is that drug development is probability and productivity, right? So number one, take as many shots on goal as you can. So I've been lucky. I've developed 20 drugs, but the number of hundreds of compounds I had to screen or start before we got there was huge. But the other piece is productivity. So we're looking for ways to take the most expensive thing we do in industry, which is this drug development process. It's incredibly expensive. It's laborious. It's time-consuming and make it more efficient. So Really look for everything that you can do to make it efficient and decrease that cost, increase the speed and increase the precision of what we do. The fifth thing is just make sure you talk to experts all the time. I was lucky that I set up a committee of 10 of the best cardiometabolic experts in the world. 
I worked with them for over a decade. I met with them as often as I could as a committee. And they really challenged me and challenged me and my team across the entire journey. And we never could separate for mediocrity because I'd have to face my 10 folks on a regular basis. So it was like, do your best at all times. And the last one is something that we're here to talk about today, which is don't be afraid to adopt technologies. The problem with drug development in big companies is it's a pretty industrialized process. So they tend not to want to innovate too much because, you know, it's a high risk business. People have got institutes across the world doing these things, you know, day in, day out, and it's a machine. But when there's a new thing you could do, it tends not to be adopted in big companies. And so just use technologies zealously in this because that's the new world. And you're trying to project the use of your drugs almost seven, eight years out. So technology is going to become embedded. So use it as early as you can. Those are some of the key lessons. I'm sure you could spend hours just on that alone. Let's talk about technology and technology's increasing impact in all things drug development discovery. You had an amazing purview seeing really everything over the course of several years. Give us a sense of what surprised you the most. We got to see decentralized trials come to the fore, machine learning AI approaches, several different approaches. What caught your eye most and what was most surprising? Well, when I was in Sanapi, one of the biggest things that I was privileged to do is I looked at the entire process end-to-end in pharma from drug discovery right through to the commercialization. But if I just take the drug development piece alone, the technology pieces that we were playing with at the time have now started to become more widely used. So decentralized trials, virtual trials, however you want to call it, tokenized trials. That's here to say. It was just that we were just at the start of the journey between the pre-COVID times. And what was fantastic is that when COVID came along, it was terrible for the world, but it was fantastic for the innovation in drug development. What we saw is this rapid shift into telehealth, massive adoption of wearables, massive adoption of decentralized trials, because the entire industry came to a halt in doing clinical trials. So the conservatism that we used to experience just literally disappeared in a very short space of time. And actually, what I loved about it, physicians got on board, the pharma companies got on board, the technologies really stepped up to the mark and were tested. The regulators came on board and said, we're going to help you to do this because it's really important and actually try and facilitate that. And we saw all of the different approaches in analytics and everything else as well. Now, that was great because we've now got into, you know, even we've seen the burgeoning of telehealth as its own practice within physicians and everything else. So the whole healthcare system also pivoted at the time. But alongside this, one of the other pieces that we were working on was this whole digital therapeutics. And you now actually prescribe digital tools to actually make people better. We have to cluster again of a number of these really starting to escalate. Can you combine drugs and digital technologies together to kind of, you know, improve outcomes for patients? I think that was in the early days, but now we're getting to see much more of this. It's almost a precision medicine approach where you use technology instead of genetics to improve individual patient care. And I think that's just wonderful because you can actually do that in virtual trials, you know, so I think it's wonderful. The use of real world data and actually now synthetic arms. I think real world data was being present, but I think this whole field has moved on now. And we're seeing real world data used in earlier phase trials. We're seeing it as long-term use of these for really characterizing benefit risk of drugs. And the beauty about that is you're now able to do it in a frictionless way with physicians, patients at home, long-term care. And I think we're still at the early stage of using synthetic arms more effectively. Once people start to actually get tokenized or digitized so that their data is accessible, then developing controlled arms, which are truly in silico, uh, will become much more normal. And you'll take away the ethical issues of using placebo in diseases where you don't have to, because you've got very, very good detail, high precision on how the disease is actually behaving. 
and you have that data density. So those are things that most excite me. I think that the world of trials is fundamentally shifting in the right way, which makes it better for physicians, patients, and also healthcare systems. So going from your big pharma experience, you know, CEO of a biotech company, a rapidly scaling biotech company, but still a much, much smaller institution than you came from. Walk us through that transition. How did you go about starting your own company and how did you go about leaving big pharma for biotech? First off, the transition has just been wonderful. I've always enjoyed my time in pharma because the potential to really have a big impact globally across many diseases has just been very high. But, you know, there's always been things nagging me. You know, the first things were that pipelines of big companies were becoming more incremental in their real impact. And I was looking for something truly really disruptive. And then drugs were becoming more complex. They were becoming more expensive. They were addressing smaller populations and weren't really reducing the cost of burning healthcare is one of my kind of big areas of passion. So when I saw this, the dew point approached me about the opportunity to pivot into biotech, where most of the big ideas were coming from, this was really beguiling because this was a big idea. It was a start of COVID and really the opportunity you know, represented the convergence of the most cutting edge biology together with the opportunity to embed technology at its outset, then applied to big populations in with affordable technologies like small molecules, right? So this was just a privilege for me to do. So that's what really excited me. And I think that trying to build what is a multi-science approach, so it's physics, it's biophysics, it's computational chemistry, it's material science, all kind of embedded into one together with AI, is just the chance that's too good to miss out on. <laughs> yeah, it feels tailor-made for you in a way. Yeah. So you closed your Series C not too long ago. What advice yeah. do you have in running a fundraising process in going out to the biotech venture market? Maybe take, take a turn specifically in today's market. What nuances should biotech funders have? Yeah. So I was fortunate that as I was closing, the market was spiraling as I closed Series C. So I was very lucky that I just got in before the whole thing really was imploding. And so I just got out before the Nadir. Well, the good thing is, at least during COVID, I could do all of my investor calls and I had over 400 virtually. Can I double check? You said 400. 400, yeah. I did 400 investor calls. Yeah. That's remarkable. It was, it was a year. And the reason for that was, you know, there's a lot of education with the brand new science, which is cutting edge. And then as the market started to spiral, people got a bit anxious about it. So we had to kind of do lots of repeated calls with folks. So it was a lot of calls over a year, but I could do that virtually. So that was good thing. The main thing that I advise all CEOs today is don't be afraid that the market's spiraling. If you've got a great idea, you believe in it, the science is really, really good. Then learn to tell your story, stick to your story, and then find people who believe in you. If you have one or two credible investors that really believe in you, don't give up. The market is always going to change. We're just going through the nuclear winter of the biotech world right now. It does mean that the audience may shift a bit. There are some people who will be more excited and other people who won't be. You're just going to find them and you will find them with time. And the other piece is make sure that you understand why you believe so much in what you want to do, because the people are looking for that belief. You have a credible science, you have a credible leadership team, and you've got a few investors that have already started to believe in you. The rest will fall into place. It just takes time. Let's dig into a topic we are passionate about here at Vile, which is clinical trial technology, applications of technology to drive more efficiencies, something you've thought quite a bit about. Where are you thinking about applying technology in DuPont's clinical trials and where do you see the biggest room for new efficiencies to be found? So we're still a couple of years away before we start our trials. So we're obviously now starting to think about how we would design the trials and what we'd like to do. So I'd like to think about modern trials. I'm a big fan of looking at, can we now develop the toolbox for synthetic arms, right? That will change us. We're in the oncology space, but we're also in some other rare disease spaces and actually control arms, synthetic arms would be fantastic for us. 
are we looking at sites that have good digital records that we can actually get into virtual care? So can we actually get to a point where some of it can be telehealth through trials? Because I want this to be as frictionless for both patients and physicians as possible. And also it gives us a density of data that we can. I'm already looking to see whether there are some wearables that would be fit for purpose for us all of our diseases. So we can actually get the patient reported outcomes from their home base while we're getting much denser information about the outcomes that we're trying to change. And also use sort of ambient intelligence where we can to try and get that in a home setting where we can actually record it. So I'm already starting to plan those and we'll be looking to find sites that have that capability and find positions who are actually interested in doing it that way. But it'll take us two years or more just generating some of the insights to make sure that we can convince ourselves that that's the right approach uh, and not take a risk with synthetic arms until we've actually developed the data set that we need to add upon. Earlier this year, you point filed the patent, your foundational yeah. platform technology. Give us a sense of some of the technology you're building and what you're most excited about in terms of technology. The technologies we're building right now are more around kind of the, just the basic science. So we have AI-driven condensate genetics. It's a machine that allows us to look at mutations, their relationship to disease, but also it helps us to point to where is there a condensate abnormality that's likely to be leading to that disease. Just different. We actually got a big investment in computer vision. So we have state-of-the-art computer vision, which actually allows us to look at the subcellular compartments with immense fidelity and density. And that's another piece of it. We patent the way that we address these macromolecular bodies called condensates, you know, which are usually a thousand or more biomolecules or proteins and nucleic acids. And you're not targeting a particular protein, you're targeting the entire behavior of this thing. So the characterization of it using AI, the characterization of it using uh, different live imaging is all part of what we're actually currently embarking on. And even the chemistry that gets into and modulates these bodies is different. So we've built kind of unique libraries and platforms around studying that as well. So that's where the technologies are. And we're putting lots of patents in place because these are proprietary to our approach right now. Great. Well, with that, I mean, thank you so much for joining us. Enjoy the Swiss holidays and uh, appreciate your time on First and Human. Thank you very much, Simon. And uh, good luck with Val. I, you're doing a great job. I think you're part of the future we're looking forward to. So thank you, everyone. Best of luck. Yeah. Thank you so much. Take care. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow us on Apple, Spotify, Google, and YouTube.